Habakkuk lived in a world that was chaotic. When he looked around, he saw his own people, Israel, the people of God, were turning away from the Lord. They were heavily involved in idolatry. Morality had plummeted with, um, amongst God's people. And when he looked out into the culture as a whole, the world beyond Israel, it was even worse. He saw corruption. He saw leaders who were uh, only interested in themselves and in their own agendas and promoting their own pride. And he looked around and he was confused and he had some really hard questions. There were things he didn't understand about his world and his culture, but even more, there were things he didn't understand about God. In essence, in the first two chapters, he's asking, God, what are you doing? He lived in a time and in a setting very like our own. Perhaps in your home country, you're looking at what's happening within the culture and you just shake your head. You look at the corruption, at the brokenness, where it seems system after system of society is getting worse. And you're almost, maybe if you're like me, the last thing that you want to do is turn on the news because it's like, it's better to just not know what's happening. Is this driving us crazy? I'm sorry. Okay. We'll try that and see how it works. Anyway, that's the world that Habakkuk lived in. And when we began this study, we began looking first at life in the darkness, what we're to do when facing doubts and hard questions. And then we looked at faith in the darkness and began to see how God was telling Habakkuk that there are things that I am doing that are far more than what you can see with your eyes. In fact, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. But today we're going to look ultimately at what our response to a life in the darkness should be. And it's the response of Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk chose to worship in the darkness. He chose to bring himself to the altar of God and present himself as a living sacrifice. He was willing to say in the prayer that he prayed here and in the song that he sang, he was willing to say, if everything falls apart, if nothing is successful, if all my work seems to account and amount to nothing, that's okay. I'm going to choose to worship you. There are four things I believe that Habakkuk did that we're going to see here in the scripture that enabled him to step out of the darkness and the chaos and the disappointment because that was a real part of it. Habakkuk was disappointed with God. In a sense, he felt like God had let him down and maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're going through circumstances in your life where you're just saying, God, I don't, I don't understand. I thought you were different. And you've got, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, a parallax view of God. It's been distorted. Well, here's what Habakkuk did to step out of the darkness and into the light of God's presence. First of all, he remembered what God had done in the past. 
Secondly, he accepted what God was doing in his life and in this world, and he chose to rest in God's embrace. Thirdly, he chose trust over emotion. And fourthly, he chose to worship the God he loved even when his circumstances looked terrible. So let's look at this in Habakkuk chapter three. And it's important to, to include the caption that begins this. This is a prayer of, the, of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianath. Now, anybody know what Shigianath is? I didn't know it either, so don't, don't feel bad. Shigianath actually appears one other time in the scripture. It's in Psalm 7, and it is a style of music. And so this whole piece, this whole chapter is actually a song. Now, it may, maybe if you're, if you're not musical, you may wonder, why does the church sing so much? Well, because singing is meant to be prayers, that's what this is. This is actually a prayer set to music. And you read at the very end of it, it tells you that it is for the choir master to be played on the stringed instruments. This was a part of corporate worship in Israel. And when we understand that every song, every worship song should be a prayer, and that our prayers can be songs, then we begin to understand why music is such an important part of worship. Because with music, we not only think with our minds, but we engage with our souls and with our spirits to express our very heart towards God. That's why musical worship is so important. And so this piece of music um, is Habakkuk's prayer. And here's how he begins. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you. And I love that. Because he's not starting with what he feels. He's not even starting with what he really knows or even believes. He's starting with the things he's heard about God. And that's where we need to begin. Not with where we are in our circumstances, not with the crisis that we're facing, and not with the disappointment that we're walking through but to look and to see what does God's word tell me and what does history reveal about God? I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. And then he begins to ask the Lord, in the midst of years, revive it. He's asking for God to bring a revival of his work into his own time, into his own life, into his own setting. In the midst of years, make it known. And then, perhaps the most important line in the whole song is in wrath, remember mercy. Let's look at it. He begins by saying, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. And what we need to do, if we're to step out of the darkness and into the light of God's presence, we need to remember the truth of who God is that he is holy, that he is sovereign, that he is a God of justice and of mercy. And to do that, Habakkuk began to remember what God had done in the past. And the next several verses, all the way up until verse 16, is a poetic song about what God has done 
in history, specifically in the history of the Jewish people. He puts it to music, it's poetic, and so you may not be able to to directly correlate each thing because it is an expression of his heart as well as of the truth. But in order for us to step out of the darkness of disappointment and fear, we have to go back and intentionally focus on what God has done in the past, both in our own life and in history as a whole. There we can look and see God's redemption and God's deliverance and see how he has shown up at the darkest hours. At the end of the song, Habakkuk says that you've made my feet like the deer's and you've set me on the high places. I believe in part this means you have given me your view of what's going on. You've enabled me to rise above what I see, the storm that seems to rage all around me and given me a glimpse of who you are and what you're doing. And that began to change his perspective. But Habakkuk is also very real and very raw in his prayer. His simple statement, O Lord, do I fear, is where we need to get to in the midst of our trials and disappointments. At some point, we need to come face to face with the fact that God is God and we are not. And that he is a God who is holy, his ways are true and are just. Because you see, what happens is in each of our lives, there is a wrestling match between my autonomy my desire to have self-determination and control and God's authority. Now, in that wrestling match, we need to realize there is only one who is going to win, and it's not you. It's not me. And the sooner that we get there, the sooner we're able to step out of the darkness and learn to worship and praise the Lord. And that's when he'll lift us up and restore our joy. There's an interesting but powerful truth in that oftentimes fear and faith go together. We have this image in our minds that if we have great faith, we will not experience fear. And that's a false assumption. When we look at the great heroes of faith throughout the scripture, all of them wrestled with fear. Think of Moses He was one of the most timid people on the the face of the earth. Um, Jesus describes him as the meekest person who ever lived. He was afraid to go and appear before Pharaoh. He was afraid because he didn't think he could speak very well. He felt inarticulate. He was fearful. David, who had great faith when he faced Goliath, repeatedly throughout the Psalms talks about his fear and yet he doesn't allow his fear, his emotions, his feelings to control the decisions he makes. He chooses instead to live by faith because faith gives life, but fear will always rob us of life. And so we need to understand that a portion of why we go through seasons of of trial, of disappointment, of darkness is because God wants to help set us free from our fear. 
and learn to trust him. The Apostle Paul, who was an incredibly brave man, who endured trial after trial, imprisoned more times than we can count. He was beaten three times. He was stoned. He faced great opposition. And yet he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever been there in your walk with Christ? Where what you're going through seems so weighty that you're, you're depressed. You're so discouraged because of what you're going through. It just seems like I can't go on. That's what Paul's saying. And he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, Paul is saying, as I went through that darkness and my, my co-workers in Christ went through it with me to arrive at the point where we would no longer rest in our own power, but rest in the authority of God who raises the dead. When in faith we take our fear to the one person who is strong enough to hold both us and our fear, God turns it into deeper faith. When we take it to the Lord, he is able to change us, even if he does not change the circumstances. That's what Paul did. He took his fear to God and learned to trust in God and not in himself. This is the same thing we see in Habakkuk. In fact, the whole theme of Habakkuk is found in this one phrase from chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the one thing we have to give to God. Everything else that I have, God gave to me. The only thing that I can ever give to him is my trust. And even that is prompted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But it's the one offering we can make, and it's the thing God desires most. So Habakkuk presents his fear. And then he asks God to revive his work. He remembered what God had done and he asked God to take the current circumstances that weighed so heavily on his own heart and to revive his work. The, the idea that we have, especially through, um, through the last generation where you would have um, tent meetings and revivals, the idea came from really from this verse, that God, we want you to revive your work. That should be the prayer of our heart. And in generation after generation, where we have seen God do great things, it has come by the people of God becoming desperate enough to really pray, God, would you revive your work, whatever it takes, even if it means hardship and difficulty and trial. We want you to revive your worship. We want you to be known. And then Habakkuk does something really important. God has told him he's going to bring judgment on Israel because of their sin. And he's told them that he's going to use a people that is even more wicked, the Chaldeans out of Babylon. He's going to use them as the instrument 
that is going to bring the judgment upon Israel. And in that process, Habakkuk chooses to intercede for both Israel and I believe for Babylon. He prays this, in wrath, in judgment, remember mercy. Now this is so important because this cuts to the very heart of who God is. God is just and holy and therefore he cannot allow sin to go without payment. But his heart is a heart of mercy. He tells us in um, 2 Peter that this, he says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God is patient and he allows circumstances and seasons to be dark because his ultimate goal is for people to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. His desire is mercy. And when we learn to pray, even for our enemies, that God would be merciful, our heart becomes more and more like his. Our character is forged, using the, the picture that Ian and Selena presented. It is forged into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what Habakkuk does. He prays. He remembers the truth of who God is, that God is a God of justice, but also a God of mercy. And then he gets specific. Look at verses three through six. He says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. And Salah is also a musical term. It's most likely some kind of rest where you're, you're to remember and to reflect upon that phrase. This phrase in Habakkuk is remembering the time when God visited, visited with Moses on Mount Sinai. Timon was a city in Edom, down in the wilderness area near where Sinai was. It was the population center. And Paran was part of that mountain range. And so what he's saying is, out of the south, God came and brought deliverance. And it's in contrast because Babylon was coming from the north. It was coming to bring judgment. And so in his prayer, he's praying. He says, Lord, I know you're bringing judgment from the north, from Babylon but I pray that you will come personally with mercy like you did in the days in the wilderness when you gave us the law, when your presence dwelt among us, and when you spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. Lord, that's what I'm wanting to see. I want to see your work revived so that this judgment that comes is met with mercy in such a way that people turn to you and worship you. He goes on and says in verse 3, His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Habakkuk is remembering God's creation. He is remembering that the heavens declare the glory of God. He's remembering that all of creation points to a creator and to his character and his likeness. In verse 4, he says his brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. 
He's remembering how God appeared to the children of Israel as the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day where his Shekinah glory penetrated so much so that when Moses looked upon God's presence, even though it was veiled by a cloud, he came out shining. That's what this verse is saying in its poetic form. It's remembering the brilliance of who God is. Now think about this. If you're walking through the darkest circumstance you can imagine, maybe it's a broken relationship, maybe you're going through the, the darkness of, of divorce, maybe you're going through heartache, through some other broken relationship, maybe you're going through despair because you feel like a failure, whatever that darkness is, do you realize that the one thing that can penetrate it is the brilliant presence of God. If he in his glory will step into that darkness and you will begin to see him for who he truly is, it will transform what you're experiencing. It may not change the circumstances, but it will definitely change your response. So remember, as we looked at it before, God's plan for our lives is not necessarily the path that is in front of us. God's plan for our life is how we, God's will is how we respond to the road that's in front of us. That's where we can choose to bring him honor and glory. That's what we want to pray. Lord, show me how to respond in each circumstance so that I bring you honor and glory and help me to remember who you truly are. He goes on in verse five and he says, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth and he looked and looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Habakkuk is going back and remembering the deliverance of God in bringing Israel out of captivity in Egypt. He remembers how plague after plague came from God's hand to show his power so that Pharaoh would set his people free. He's remembering his acts, and that's changing his perspective. The same thing is true in our life. We need to look back and see the greatness of God and what he has already done in our life. This is one of the other reasons why we sing. And I want to encourage you, whether you're musical or not, find a way to express back to the Lord what he has already done in your life. Write it down. Make a piece of art. Do a painting. Do something that helps you to express God, this is what you've done in my life, and I'm worshiping you. Because worship is not just singing. It is our prayers. It is our work. You can take where you work and determine to use the abilities and the gifts that God has given you as an expression of worship no matter where it is. If you're in a corporate secular world, that is the place that needs work as worship more than anything else. Choose to determine, Lord, I am working this way as an expression of who you are in my life and what you've done. We are made to worship, and we find life when we choose to worship. Habakkuk continues to remember the greatness of God, and, and if we were to go on through the rest of the verses, 
he, he talks about the rivers and the, and the sea, and, and he asks, God, were you angry with the rivers and with the sea? And it's in poetic imagery, it's pointing to the time when God um, parted the Red Sea and Israel walked across on dry land, and when he parted the Jordan so that they were again able to walk across on dry land and pick up those stones of remembrance and build an altar on the other side when they entered the promised land. He's remembering all that God has done. And he wrote it into a prayer, into a song. He remembered. But secondly, he chose to rest in God's plan. He chose to accept the circumstances that he was in and believe God, because of who he is, that he really was working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Here's how Habakkuk said it. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. I hear and my body trembles. When he remembers who God really is, his holiness, his perfection, his power, it changes him. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. What he's saying is, I recognize how sinful I am, how incapable I am. My legs tremble beneath me. I don't have strength. And then he answers and says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He says, God, I'm going to wait for your timing. He's not saying, I like the circumstances, but he's saying, I trust you and I'm going to rest in you because you are good and you are in control. Back in chapter two, Habakkuk made a really important decision. He had taken his questions to God, and in chapter two, verse one, um, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post. I will station myself on the tower and look out to see what God will say to me. And then the last part of that verse, he, he, he adds this, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Do you see the humility in Habakkuk? He took his questions to God, which is where we need to take them. But even as he's taking his questions to God, he's recognizing that God's authority is supreme and that he eventually needs to give an answer back to God, even for his complaint, for his questions. His answer is what we just read in verse 16. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He's waiting for God's timing. He says, I'm going to rest in you. Habakkuk accepted what God was doing in his life, and he trusted him. That's the next part. He ultimately chose to live by faith and not by sight. He trusted in God's providence. And ultimately, what he did that we need to follow is Habakkuk chose trust over emotion. Because our emotions are like gasoline. When we pour them on the fire of what we're going through, it gets worse. And it so in, in, engulfs all that we are experiencing that it's very difficult to make good decisions and right responses. So he chose to remember who God is and that transformed his emotions so that he was able to trust during seasons of disappointments, emotions will lead us to poor decisions. 
And we need to counter our emotions with truth, specifically the truth of who God is and that he is good and that he is in control. Because our emotions will cloud our thoughts. We must take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. And whatever you're facing right now, how would it be different if you really believed that God is who he says he is, that God is good, that God is with you, that God is for you, despite how you feel? It will change it. Remember God's character. Then you can trust God's providence. Now, I've put into your, into your sermon notes just some of the attributes of God because ultimately that's what Habakkuk was doing. He was looking back at what God had done, but he was ultimately remembering who God is. And so if you're going through a time of trial, you may want to look at some of these attributes and some of the verses that display this characteristic of God and begin to pray them back to God and begin to ask him, show me what it means when it says you are omnipotent, that you are all-powerful. Help me to understand and believe that you are omnipresent, that you are everywhere that I go. Not only in height, width, and depth of space, but in time. Help me to know that you are all-knowing. Therefore, you know what I need before I even ask. Help me to remember that you're transcendent, that unlike me, you're not bound to physical laws. You can, you can break the rules because you are the rules. That's, understanding who God is changes us. And I want to encourage you to, especially if you're going through a season of darkness, take some time to remember who God is. Use these as a, as a beginning point to look at that because that's what Habakkuk had done. He encountered what he was feeling with the truth of who God is. And ultimately, he was able to trust in God's providence. Now, I want to give my own definition of providence because it's not a word that we, we use. And if, if English is not your first language, it may not be one that you're very familiar with. So this is my definition. Some of our theologians could give us a much better definition, but this is the one that helps me grasp it. It means this. God is working at connecting our lives together in the weaving of world circumstances to bring as many people as possible to eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus. That's his ultimate goodness. It will be displayed in eternity, but that's what he's working through. Now, here's the thing. It is very easy for us in our modern world to see how events in one place have dramatic effects in another. What happened to the financial markets in Asia when the UK voted for Brexit? Or what happened when the United States elected Donald Trump to be their president? You saw almost instantly a decline in the market in Asia. What happens here has an effect over there. Now, I believe most of those were driven by fear and emotion um, because they tended to, to balance back out over the next few days, but there was a cause and effect. 
It's easy in our very interconnected world where it's connected by information to see that we really are interconnected. I know that was redundant, but I didn't know any other way to say it. You know, there's a worldwide web that connects us together about information. God is even more connected because God is not only connected in space between different continents and different people groups, but he is interconnected throughout time. And that he is working in ways we cannot see, which is what he told Habakkuk. You can't see all the things that I'm going to bring out of this captivity that your people are going into. I'm setting the stage for the gospel. That's ultimately what he was doing. And we looked at that a few, uh, a few weeks ago. Here's how I, I came to see that personally um, last week. I was doing some study preparing for the Christmas messages, and I was, I was doing the, the genealogies. How many are you excited that I'm going to preach on the genealogies of Jesus? Come on now. Thank you. I don't believe any of you, but it's going to be good. I promise. We're going to, we're going to look at the, at the mothers of Jesus that are listed in Matthew, and, um, and it's going to be cool. It really is cool. But that got me to thinking about my own lineage. Now, I happen to, to come from a part of the United States that um, is back in the hills, coal mine country of Kentucky, and um, it's not, it doesn't really have much of a reputation of being prestigious or, in fact, just the opposite. Um, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just a bubba. That's just who I am. But we're able to trace back our, my family, I'm able to trace it back eight generations. And so with my son and grandson, I know 10 generations of, of Stevens and my daughter and uh, sons and granddaughters and sons. Um, but when I go back eight generations, I come to a man by the name of Moses Stevens who was born in 1762. And the only reason we know anything about him um, is because at 16 years of age, he enlisted in the colonial army and fought against the British, sorry, Trev, um, in, yes, in that colonial war, he fought against, fought against the British uh, at 16 years of age. And, and we only know that because many years later, when he's an old man, he had to write a document out um, to apply for his pension as a veteran of the Revolutionary War. And we don't know who his parents were. We can't trace it back any farther than that. But what he writes in his letter was really intriguing to me. It was humbling to me. Because the thing he mentions about the time when he entered into the army was where he was from at that time, which was the county of Surrey in North Carolina. And he lived, and he's very specific to, to write this, near the Moravian Mission. And if I understand the tracings that I did back, I found out that after the war, he went back and married one of the women from the Moravian mission. And then because of God's impact in his life, he named his children Solomon and Elisha and Joshua and Moses, all biblical names because of a biblical heritage that he wanted to hand down. And I realized that eight, now ten generations of Stevens have been blessed because persecution happened in Moravia hundreds of years ago that drove 
Moravian followers of Jesus Christ out of their homeland, some of which ended up in North Carolina and started a mission that was sharing the gospel with my ancestor. Do you see how we're interconnected? How God does that? And every one of us has a story like that. We just may not know the details yet. He's woven us together. That's what Habakkuk begins to see. And I'm way out of time. So we're going to just blitz along. Habakkuk, verse 17. Here's ultimately what he does. He chooses to worship in the darkness. Habakkuk chose to worship the God he loved even when the circumstances looked terrible. And he writes this song. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls. What he's saying is, if everything I work for falls apart, if all my dreams collapse, if all the labor that I'm doing amounts to absolutely nothing, it's okay. I'm going to choose to rejoice. You see, many of us, if we're honest, we look at our prayers and our prayers to God is, God, make me successful. Habakkuk says, Lord, make me worshipful. Make my life full of worship. Whether I succeed or not does not matter. Worship does. He says, this is the determination of my life. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the sovereign Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's what he chose to do. And the right response to testing, to trial, to darkness is always to worship because that is what we're created to do. We were formed according to Isaiah 43, verse 7, God made us for his glory, that we would worship him. John Piper wisely said that missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions will come to an end when Christ returns. Worship is eternal. Worship is to be the center of our lives. It is to be our highest priority. That is why we are to encourage one another to grow in worship, to teach our children to worship to have lives that express worship in our work, in our creativity, in our prayer, in our love for others, in our service. It is to be the central point of all that we are. The intended result of our spiritual testing is to surrender to God's sovereignty because that is where we find joy. To bring ourselves to the altar and say, Lord, like Habakkuk, Whatever happens, no matter how bad it gets, I'm going to trust you. You are the Lord. You are my strength. You are my salvation. Even if everything in my life fails, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you're in control, that you are good, that you are righteous. I want to end with one little point. The name Habakkuk means to embrace. That's what he did. 
Habakkuk embraced God. That's why he could worship. Even though his circumstances didn't make sense. That's what he's calling us to do as well. To come to him, to choose to remember who he is and what he's done, to rest that his, in the fact that his plans are good, to choose to trust who he is rather than our emotions, and ultimately to choose to worship. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, these words are hollow unless we choose to live them. So, I, Lord, I ask that you would help me and help us to choose to worship, to see you for who you truly are, and to respond in a way that demonstrates we believe you are working even if we can't see how it all fits together, even if it's going to take generations before we even begin to see what the fruit is, Lord, we want to choose to trust you because you are God. Lord, we lay ourselves down at that altar. We choose to give up on the wrestling match and say, you're in charge. Have your way. Help us to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.